yeah, yeah. So listen, the Apostle Paul writes something that makes me think. You ever read something in the Bible that just, you read it and you go, wow, never really thought about that. Never, never really seen it that way. I believe that's the, the inspiration, the illumination of the Holy Spirit that kind of works that way. You can read, you know, the same passage for 20 years and never see it. And in that year 21, because of what you're going through, the Holy Spirit just triggers something and it just it pops at you. These are, this is one of those verses that um, I guess I've never, really, I've never really spent time thinking about it. I've, I, I know I've read it because I've read through the scripture before, but I guess I've never really spent time thinking about it. Here's what Paul writes. Clothe yourselves with Jesus and forget about satisfying your sinful self. And, and so I, I cut out sinful in my mind. Clothe yourselves with Jesus and forget about yourself. <laughs> huh? Clothe, clothe yourselves. Would you, so, so put on. How many of you put on clothes this morning? Hopefully you did, right? We, we always say at Pathway Church, we don't have a dress code. We just want you to dress, right? And hopefully you've got some clothes on. So we put on clothes. Clothe yourselves. So Paul gives us this this metaphor, this, this image, this thought line of putting on Jesus. Now, we know, okay, we're smart. We know that he's not meaning that we put on physically the body of Jesus on us, right? It, it, he's talking about the qualities of Jesus, the characteristics of Jesus, to live our lives how Jesus did. Now, how many of you remember several years ago, the WWJD, fads that kind of came through and then everybody started making fun of it because we had wristbands and bumper stickers and t-shirts and all this. The WWJD, what, what did that stand for again? What would Jesus do? Yeah, yeah, what would, what would Jesus do? Now, I gotta, I gotta admit, that's not all that wrong to ask that question. I mean, I mean, when you come into a decision, when you come into a situation, when you are involved with, in a relationship um, you're making future plans or you're dealing with something right now, it, it's, that's not a bad question to ask. What would Jesus do in this scenario? What, how would Jesus handle this situation? How would Jesus deal with this person? That's not a, that's not a bad question to ask. And that's what Paul's trying to, trying to get us to think along these lines of how would Jesus live his life? How, we, we need to put on those characteristics. We need to add into our lives the characteristics of Jesus. So what I want us to do for the next three minutes is I want you to grab two or three people around you and form a group. And for the next three minutes, I want you to talk about the characteristics or the qualities of Jesus that you think we should add into our lives. Okay, ready? Stand up with me. Grab two or three people Two or three people, and you're going to answer that question on the screen. What characteristics of Jesus should we add into our lives? Come on, add, grab two or three people into a group and start talking. There you go. Two or three people. There you go. What characteristics of Jesus should we add into our lives? Just get as many as you can. What characteristics of Jesus should we add into our lives? Okay, that wasn't quite three minutes, but I'm going to get you to come on back, come on back, high five the people you were with, give them a handshake or a hug, say, yeah, yeah, we were, they were the best team ever. Yep, yeah. Okay, so, so here's the deal. I bet, I bet most of us 
if not all of us, but I'm just going to say most of us, because some of you may have caught this, I bet most of us didn't mention gentleness as one of the characteristics that you think we need to add into our lives that is found in Jesus. Hmm. And yet, the Apostle Paul includes it in Galatians 5, our key scripture that we've been messing with, looking at, discussing over the last several weeks. I mean, look at what he says. Paul says, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Come on, read it with me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I bet you didn't think about grabbing all nine of those and putting them on your list because whether you realize it or not, Jesus shows us those character, characteristics, those qualities in his life. In fact, this is what you need to get on your outline the fruit of the Spirit is displayed in Jesus. Hopefully you got your outline out and you're filling it in. The fruit of the Spirit is displayed in Jesus. Come on, say that with me. The fruit of the Spirit is displayed in Jesus. So what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. <clears throat> so the quality of gentleness makes me think of a gentleman. Now, what's interesting about a gentleman is defined, gentleman is defined as chivalrous, courteous, and honorable. We want our daughters to date and marry gentlemen. We want our boys to become gentlemen. I remember my dad talking to me when I was like 12, 13 years old. He said, Bart, I want you to be a gentleman. And there are certain things that he taught me to do. One of the things was open, you know, the, the door for my wife. Uh, whether it's in a store or the car or whatever, those kinds of things. He, he, he taught me, <clears throat> excuse me, taught me to do the gentlemanly kinds of things. Online sources say this, a gentleman is strong and true to his word. A gentleman does the right thing, even if the right thing is not the easy thing or the popular thing. A gentleman, um, his strength of character is apparent, but it's not overbearing. He does not boast on his own possessions or achievements. He knows the difference between confidence and arrogance. Did you catch that? The difference between confidence and arrogance. That's, ooh, man, that applies in our culture. He speaks with frankness, but always with sincerity and sympathy. A gentleman means what he says and says what he means. He thinks of the rights and feelings of other people rather than his own. He treats women with respect, and he always pays for the date. <laughs> and all the ladies said, yeah. Okay, many online sources say this. Get this one. Don't miss this. Many online sources say a gentleman is something very rare today. In fact, one source said a gentleman is what more guys should be today. Hmm. And yet in our culture, ironically, gentleness is misunderstood and devalued. Gentleness is defined as soft, quiet, reserved, and wimpy. That's how our culture sees it. It's synonymous with words like meekness, which we think means weakness. Uh, with humility, which we think means humiliated. That's what our culture thinks about gentleness. But that's not what the Bible says. The gentleness that we are called to, that the Apostle Paul is talking about, is different. Take a look at Colossians 3. Paul says, God has chosen you and made you his holy people. He loves you, 
So you should always clothe yourselves with mercy, kindness, humility, here it is, gentleness, and patience. There's that idea of clothing yourselves with these things. Just like the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5 that we read earlier, Paul uses the same Greek word right here in Colossians 3. If you're not familiar, the New Testament was written in Greek, translated so that we could have it in English. But sometimes there's something lost in the translation. We kind of miss what the author is intending. And, and it's, it's kind of that way here. Because in our culture, gentleness is defined, misdefined, misunderstood. Um, uh, gentleness, what Paul is talking about, is this Greek word, which means, I want you to get this down or looks, realize it, power under control. Say that with me. Power under control. Pautus. Prautus is, is, the, is the idea of this in Greek. The Greeks use this word to describe something very unique, and it may be something that we're not familiar with, but I think it really gives um, strong meaning to this idea of power under control. The Greeks used this word protus to describe strong animals that were brought under control, that they were tamed, that they were domesticated, much like a wild horse full of power and strength. Take a look. But if you take a horse that has been trained, a wild horse that has been trained, that same horse knows when to run with all its strength and yet stay in control. Take a look at this horse. Power under control. I want you to get this definition down on your outline. This is huge. Gentleness, gentleness is responding to others with power under control, with my power under control. Come on, read it with me. Gentleness is all about responding to others with my power under control. Hmm. Power under control. Those who have gentleness don't overreact. They have discipline in their conversations, in their actions. They understand when assertiveness is needed or when no action or words are necessary. Gentleness is responding to others with power under control, being sensitive to how your words and your actions affect other people around you. Have you ever said or done something and you see the impact? Have you ever have you had, had that experience before where maybe you've said something and you, and you see how it affected the people that just heard it? Hmm. You're sensitive to that. You're willing to defer to the opinions and preferences of others. You don't always have to have your way. You're tender towards the weakness and limitations of other people. Gentleness chooses the right response. If a strong response is needed, it is thought out and it's sensitive to how it is said and when it is said. How many of you know those two things are really important when you are trying to communicate something that is possibly going to come across strong. The how and the when. Both are needed. How many of you have ever said something to someone at the wrong time? Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> and, you, and you go, oh man, why did, I, why did I just do that? They're obviously too busy or they're not paying attention or they're not in a good mood. How many of you have ever went to your boss and you've said something at the wrong time to your boss? Yeah, okay. 
How many of you have ever said something in the wrong way? And, and, and you come away and you go, that's not what I meant. I, I didn't intend. And then you got to back up and say, look, that's not what I meant. And they say, well, that's what you said. It's like, but that, I didn't mean it that way, but that's the way you said it to me. We really have to think through how we say things and when we say things. Have you ever regretted responding to someone out of control? I'm just assuming that you're never like that, but I struggle with this at times. Where I, I respond, if I'm not careful, I will respond before I think it completely through. And to me, that's the definition of being out of control, is not thinking it through all the way. And, and so I don't think about what I'm going to say before I say it, or I, or I don't think about what I'm going to do before I do it, and then... And then I have regrets, and, and, and I go away, and it's like, ah. You ever face that? Maybe I'm the only one. But I, I, it, I, there, there are times that I say things I wish I could take it back, or at least I wish I could rephrase it in a way that this is what I meant. That this is what, I, I didn't mean to hurt you. You know, there, there are there are tones, sharp tones that I use, or, or particular words that I use. And I mean, come on, we know if, if we're close to a person, if we're married or good friends, or we're close to a person, we know the words, we know the trigger points, we, we know the things that it's, it just grinds on them, it just gets under their skin. If you're not careful, we, we have a tendency to use those if, if we're not thinking about it. The times when you've jumped to conclusions, Anybody else jump to a conclusion before about something? You made an assumption, and it's like, wow, where did I even come up with this? I didn't even have all the information. Or I've re reacted impulsively. I, you know, somebody needed to, to hear something, and, it, and sometimes there are situations at work, at school, friendship, relationship. Somebody needs to hear something, and I'm not saying that we should always pull back from confrontation. No, sometimes people need to hear something, but, but we have a tendency to go into a situation. It's like, I'm going to make sure that they hear it, and we verbally wipe out someone, and then they needed to hear it, but we verbally wipe them out because we're putting them in their place, and then after we say it, we, we yell, we, 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 we regret what we've just done. We, it's like most people, they need to show their strength or argue their point, but, but people with gentleness, they don't need to prove anything. Gentleness is countercultural for us. Look what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, I, I urge you, I love those words, I urge you, who have been chosen by God to live up to the life to which God has called you. You know what he's saying? He's, come on, live up to this life. Wow, look what he says. Always be humble, gentle, and patient, accepting each other in love. You know the word that, that I have a hard time with in that verse? Always. Yeah. Isn't that hard? If he just said sometimes, or occasionally, or often. I could do often. Anybody else could do often? I could do often. But it's always. I even looked it up in the Greek, and it's always. It's like, I can't even get away from it. I can't you know, change translations on it. It just means always. Gentleness is not simply a temperament 
or a personality. It is something that the Holy Spirit produces in us. That is the only way that the always is going to take place, is that the Holy Spirit produces this in us. But Jesus modeled gentleness in all of his relationships and relating to others. I mean, it's no wonder that common people, even sinners, wanted to be around Jesus. It's no wonder that children wanted to be around Jesus. I mean, that alone should say a lot. I mean, let's just watch kids sometimes. I'm a big observer of people. If you just watch kids around adults, you learn really quickly if they're a kid person or not. Because the kids have radar. Have you ever noticed that? The kids will not approach an adult who doesn't like kids. They, they go near, oh, you're one of those. And they just go the other way. They go to somebody else, right? It's, it's interesting to me that dogs are the same way. If you're not a dog person, they know you're not a dog person. And they just kind of steer around you. Like, hmm. It's just, you, just, you, just, you see it. Sometimes that's, that's the case of, um, you know, with, with people. And Jesus attracted all kinds of people, including kids. He was especially gentle to those who were hurting, to those who were outcasts. In Luke 19, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, was a hated man, but Jesus treated him with gentle friendship, inviting himself over to Zacchaeus' house. I love that. He goes, in the story, he, he says, hey, come down from the tree. I'm coming to your house for lunch. Hope you got some good food. He just pushed friendship into Zacchaeus. In, in John 8, Jesus was gentle with a woman who had just been accused of adultery. And the religious were ready to stone her, but Jesus showed care for her. And he says to her, is there anybody else left that um, accuse you or condemn you? And she says, no. And then he says, I don't accuse you or condemn you either. You know, I've always been... Um, intrigued with Jesus in Matthew 21 or John 21. Let me take a look at this. This is interesting. Seeing this, this view of gentleness opens up an angle of a storyline. Take a look at Matthew 21. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the temples of the money changers, the chairs, and those selling doves. He said to them, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see this, I don't think to myself, that's a pretty weak and wimpy Jesus. I mean, he went into the temple area and started clearing the house, clearing everything. This is a show of force. This is a show of physical power. Jesus did not react impulsively. He knew exactly what he was doing. Why? Because people were being exploited in the name of God, and action was necessary. Look what it says. Jesus drove out the people buying and selling animals. Worshippers came into the temple area to be obedient. They wanted to worship, 
I mean, don't miss this. The people were coming to worship God, being obedient in their faith. And part of their worship system was to sacrifice an animal to God in worship. And most people traveled far distances to come into this area, to, and, they, and they didn't bring an animal with them. And so when they would get to the temple, they had to purchase an animal. And, and the, you know, unfortunately, the merchants who were selling the animals had a high markup, and they were exploiting the people. If they did bring an animal with them, most of them were told that it wasn't good enough, that it didn't meet temple standards. So guess what? They had to then buy another animal at a high markup and get a very low you know, price for the animal that they brought. Hmm. Merchants were profiting over people's desire to worship. Look what it also says. Jesus knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. Some worshipers brought money to pay their tithe to God. They were bringing offerings to God. But if you brought your common money from the street, it wasn't good enough in the temple. It was no good in the temple, in fact. It had to be exchanged for temple money by the money changers, guess what, who also had a high markup on their exchange rate. So they were exploiting you. Plus, this is the part that gets me the most, he knocked over the chairs of those selling doves. Now, we, we think, oh, that's just you know, more of the animals that were there. Oh, no, 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 it's more than that. The preferred sacrifice in the temple was a lamb. But, but a provision was made in Levitical law, a provision was made for people who could not afford a lamb, who were poor. Leviticus 5 says, if you cannot afford to bring a sheep, you may bring to the Lord two turtle, turtle doves or pigeons for a sin offering. By going after those who were selling doves, Jesus was attacking those who were exploiting the poor. Merchants were profiting from, from people's desire to worship. The environment was in direct opposition to what worship of God was supposed to be like. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, this ticked Jesus off, and rightfully so. And so he responded by shutting down the system during Passover week. Don't miss this. During Passover week, the peak of commercial activity for the temple. Kind of be like shutting down Walmart on Black Friday. Get the idea? This was big. This was not weak and wimpy Jesus. This was strong and powerful Jesus who responded forcefully and strong against those who were hypocritical and taking advantage of other people. So this strong, powerful, forceful Jesus, a man of action, showing strength, now flips. Look at this next verse. In the very next moment, after the show of force, the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. Don't, don't miss this. Here he's, he's throwing tables and he's pushing over crates of animals and he's throwing money everywhere in the temple and he's driving them out and he's saying, get out of here. You have made this the wrong place of worship. You have ruined this. Get out of here. And then in the same moment, he begins to heal those who come to him. Man, I'll tell you what, if that isn't gentleness, I don't know what is. It was a complete shift. Power under 
control. I, I, I kind of wonder, I was thinking this this week, probably after serving for the, the Halloween trick-or-treating event, I was thinking, was Jesus out of breath? I mean, were people coming in to, to, to be healed and he was out of breath and going, okay, just give me a minute. <clears throat> okay, okay, now I can deal with you. You know what I mean? I mean, he, he, he had just expended so much energy and, and physical strength of doing what he did, and now these people come to him. And he heals them because this is what it's all about to him. This is what worship was supposed to be by, about. Talking with them, spending time with them, healing them. This is the gentle side of Jesus. In one verse, we often miss. We see it also not just in Matthew 21, but in John 21. It says on the, on the night before Jesus was facing the cross, he, he gathered his disciples. We know this story. And they gathered together for the Last Supper, and he was talking to them about how he would be arrested, and he would soon face the cross, and he told them, you will run away, all of you will run away in fear. And confidently, Peter pushes back, and he says, no, 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 I'll, I'll never do that. Look what he says in Luke 22, Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even you even know me. So later that night, fast forward the story, Jesus is arrested. And Peter and John and a few others are still nearby. And Peter is accused of knowing Jesus, of being in the group. And Peter denied even knowing him, knowing Jesus, three different times. And look what it says in Luke 22. And immediately while he was still speaking, while he was still saying the last time, denying Jesus, the rooster crowed. And that moment, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. And Peter left the courtyard, weeping. So Jesus comes back to life in resurrection. Back to life and he's around his followers again and they're experiencing him. Peter's avoiding everyone. I bet you would too. How could he possibly face Jesus after all he had done? Right? How, how could he face everyone else after all he had done? The, the, the emotions are in the air in John 21. Peter and some others are fishing and they see Jesus on the shore. And so they bring their boat to shore and they find that Jesus had cooked breakfast, fish and bread over an open fire. And Jesus says, come on guys, eat. Let's eat together. And so they eat breakfast. Can you imagine eating breakfast with a resurrected Jesus? I mean, just before he, he was dead and buried in a tomb and, and now he's alive and he has cooked and serving breakfast to you. And so they eat. And John 21 says, after breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? Who, who are these? The others that are there. Do you love me more than these guys? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my lambs. And then Jesus repeats the question. This is the second time. He repeats the question, Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord. 
you know that I love you. To take care of my sheep. A third time. How many times? A third time. Jesus asked him, Simon, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know everything. What does he mean by that? You know everything. You know what I've done. You know how I have denied you. You know how I have failed. You know how I have walked away from you. You know how I did exactly what you said I would do. You know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. And then he says to him two words that may not mean anything to us, but I'm telling you they meant everything to Peter. He says to Peter, follow me. You know why those words are so important? The context. Think about the context. They're on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this is just like the first time Peter and his brother first started out in Mark chapter 1, you know what Jesus said to them? He said, come, follow me. You know what this is? This is a restoration. He's saying, you know what, Peter? It's as if it never happened. It's huge. Jesus asked him three questions. Why did he ask him three questions? You know why he did. He obviously was recalling the three denials so that Peter would realize what was taking place. And then so gently, he didn't condemn Peter. He didn't criticize Peter. He didn't rebuke him or shame him. In fact, in the context, and we don't necessarily pick this up until you kind of study the, 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 the Greek behind it. In the context, it doesn't even appear that Jesus asked the questions in public. They, they weren't with the rest of the guys. It appears as though they had walked off. Peter and Jesus had walked off and they were talking privately away from the group because later on it says that John walked behind them. And that's how John knew all this. He could write it down later. So, so they were walking. This was a private conversation. Jesus could have blasted Peter in front of the group, publicly shamed him. I told you you would do this. But he didn't do that. How do you respond to someone who has betrayed your trust? It's a good question, isn't it? I'm reminded that, that I can't develop this kind of gentleness on my own. I, I, I can't do this in me. I know I need this, but I can't develop this on my own. It's only a work of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can produce this kind of gentleness in me. But, but what I see in Jesus is something that can help me. There's something in Jesus that can change everything for me and for you. And this is what I want to leave you with today. It comes on this, on this night um, of his betrayal. 
right before he was facing the cross. Jesus knew he was going to be arrested. We know all that. He, he was going to go to the cross. Jesus was praying alone in the garden. You probably know this story. And what's interesting is in all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are words recorded by Jesus, get this, that are exactly the same words in all three Gospels. Something that Jesus prayed. This is it. Jesus says to God, I want your will to be done, not mine. I want your will, God, to be done. I want your plan to be done. I know what I'm going to face, and I wish there was another way. And if there is another way, please let it happen. But I submit myself to your plan. I surrender my will to your will. There was a level of surrender and submission in Jesus that I don't have. And I would say that you probably don't either. Jesus had ultimate power, yet his power was always under the control of his Father. He had the power to change the situation in a moment. But instead, Jesus surrendered his will to God's plan, power under control. I mean, we see this later. You guys know the story. We see this later when Peter tries to change things. The same Peter that we're talking about. Remember this deal? And remember what he was. Peter is a fisherman by trade, not a soldier. Right? Just keep that in mind. One of the men with Jesus, we know from, from Mark's gospel that it was Peter. One of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword. What was Peter doing with a sword? I don't know. But, he, you know, Jesus is talking all this talk about getting arrested and stuff. Not on my watch, Jesus. I'm going to make sure nobody lays a hand on you. What does he do? He stashes a sword with him, and he brings it to wherever they are, and here they are, Jesus is praying, and then the, the mob comes to take him, and Peter pulls out his sword, and what does he do? He aims to chop off a guy's head, and he misses. I'm thinking that, but I'm pretty sure he didn't aim for the ear. Let's get his ear, right? I mean, come on. Think about it. If you're swinging a sword at somebody, you're not aiming at the ear, and he missed, and he struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear, Jesus turns to Peter and he goes, put away your sword. Why don't you bring that thing? Put that away. Look at his next words. Jesus says, don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly. He's saying, don't you realize the power that I have as the Son of God. Don't you realize who I am? And if I want this situation to stop, it would stop. Don't you realize that I could rise up in power and strength and dominate this? In fact, you read the account when they said, we've come here to arrest Jesus, and Jesus says, I am he. Do you know what it says in Scripture? That all those that were ready to arrest him backed up. I kind of think it was like, you want me. And all of them were, oh, it's him. Everyone knew the power that Jesus had. 
But Peter thought he needed help. (laughs) And so he swings his sword. And Jesus says, I could end this right now. The Father would send angels to end this right now. Look what he says. But if I asked that, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen? Do you know what he's saying? God's plan, not mine. God's bigger plan here, not mine. Gentleness is not relinquishing power. Gentleness is not weakness. It's surrendering your power for a purpose that's bigger than yourself. Ultimately, it's God's purpose. And no one can consistently do this on their own. None of us. I mean, we, we can make choices you know, that, that open up our hearts to what the Holy Spirit is doing. But ultimately, we know it's, it's the Holy Spirit that begins to work in our lives. So how do we open up our heart to all that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in our life? That's the ultimate question we have to ask throughout this series regarding the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Is, I know I need gentleness. I need power under control. Maybe you struggle with this and you're saying, man, I need this. Because I blow people away. I overreact to so many situations. I need God's help in putting this power under control. So how do I open up my heart so that the Holy Spirit would produce this in me? I came across a passage where it specifically says that Jesus is gentle. It's the only one in the Bible. And of all things, he says it about himself. Now, I don't know about you. I've already proven my case that Jesus is gentle. Because there were so many times that he could have risen up in power. And what does he do? He does exactly the opposite. He submits. And here we know then that Jesus is gentle. And Jesus says, yeah, I am Gentle. Look what he says in Matthew 11. Jesus, our example, he tells us what to do. If we want this gentleness in our life, he tells us what to do. Look what he says. Accept my teachings and learn from me because I am gentle and humble. Wow. So what is he saying? I want you to get this down. Two things here real quickly and then we're done. I develop gentleness in my life. Go ahead. When I learn from Jesus, I develop gentleness in my life when I learn from Jesus. Now this, real quickly, how do you learn from Jesus? Doing what you're doing right now is a good way to do it. Coming together for worship together, studying God's word together, it's a good way to learn. Doing it on your own. I I hit God's word on a daily basis. I'm reading through it. I'm studying it. I'm thinking about it. I'm writing down thoughts. So you're you're learning through reading. You're learning by getting together and hearing teaching. Small groups is another great way to do that. I listen to podcasts all the time of other speakers, of other preachers, of other teachers. I mean, and and you say, well, that's your job. I, I understand that, but I'm not doing that part of it for my job. I'm doing that part of it for my spiritual life. 
I'm receiving. I'm opening up my heart to all that the Holy Spirit wants to do. I am trying to learn from Jesus. Everybody follow me on that? And that's what we need to do. That's the practical way to position yourself so that the Holy Spirit can do more in your life and produce more in your life is you learn from Jesus, especially in this gentleness part. But there's a little bit more. And I want you to see, I, this, this may not like, you know, affect you the way that it affected me. This may not bring joy to your heart the way it did this week for me. But there were some dots that were connected for me this week. Sometimes I read through the scriptures and it's like, wow, these things connect all the way around full circle. Let me show you something here. Jesus tells us, learn from me, accept my teachings. What's he talking about? What he has taught. In fact, it's been said that um, there's certain versions of the Bible that have all of Jesus' words in red print. You may have a Bible like that, okay? Um, I know the version Bible on my Bible app, it has it that way, where Jesus' words are in red print. It's been said that if we want to follow Jesus, all we have to do is follow and do what the red print says, a red-letter Christian. Interesting, huh? Just follow the words of Jesus, right? Follow the words of Jesus. That's what he's saying. Accept my teaching. Follow the words of Jesus. Learn from Jesus. And watch how this comes full circle. What is the primary job of the Holy Spirit? Check out how this works. Jesus tells us the primary job of the Holy Spirit in John 14. The Holy Spirit will teach you everything and remind you of everything, get this, I have told you. So Jesus is saying, you want to learn gentleness? You want to be gentle? You want to have that characteristic in your life? Learn from me. Apply my teachings. Accept my teachings. Follow my teachings in your life. And then graciously, he has given us the Holy Spirit who comes along. And guess what he does? He reminds us of Jesus' teachings, to follow Jesus' teachings, to learn from Jesus. He keeps pointing to Jesus. And so I develop gentleness in my life when I open my heart to the Holy Spirit. 